0: Hey there, I'm Lucas Fitz. If you know me, you know two things to be true. I love a good pair of denim, and I'm always here for the stories. When I first got into the heritage goods movement and buying intentionally, I looked to American Field as an industry leader in connecting cool brands to cool consumers. There's nothing better than hearing the story behind how a big idea grew into a business. Now, we're bringing it online and inviting you to join in the conversation, whether you're watching or listening along from wherever you call home. I'll be hosting these fireside chats, intimate, personal looks at the inner workings of some of our favorite brands on our AF network. So sit down, grab a whiskey or coffee or beer, and ride along as we shine the spotlight on real people and real stories. This is AF Fireside. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com. Hey, welcome to AF Fireside. Excited to have you back with us again. I have a guest that I am very excited to talk about. Uh, All things menswear, all things sustainability, all things long, rich history of the brand. Rand Parton from one of my favorite brands out there, Apollos. Did I say that right? You nailed it. Did I? Okay, good. (laughs) We were saying before we hit record, it's one of those words that I have read or uh you know written probably a hundred times and i've never actually said it out loud (laughs) so i'm always afraid of butcher something (laughs) on here uh rand great to see you great to meet you um been a big time fan of the brand for a long time welcome to the podcast
1: thanks for having me i really appreciate it
0: for sure so can you give us a background on the brand for for anybody that doesn't know what you do
1: yeah, so um, my brother Shay and I started Apollos um, as far back as 2004. Um, we kind of, you know, went through a few different phases of uh, product categories that kind of led ourselves into this, for lack of a better description of at the time, um, this menswear market. Um, we had the really incredible privilege to travel a lot at an early age and just see. A lot of different cultures and uh, places around the globe. And I think that informed our understanding of trying to bridge um, like small craft industries with a marketplace. And it just happened to be the timing where we originally started with both men's and women's. And we kind of partnered with these smaller supply chains, giving them kind of working within their kind of uh, competency level to create different categories and then try to. You know, bridge those into the different marketplaces we are working in, and the women's market uh, wasn't really. It was just a very competitive marketplace, so that kind of dissipated pretty quickly. But it was just right when I feel like you kind of get into like two thousand six, two thousand seven, where the menswear market started to kind of take shape. So we would have these really lopsided ordering of you know these startup menswear stores that would order a lot of product and then, you know, really small women's wear orders. So we kind of just decided to segue into primarily just all men's sportswear um, and anchored it to this word Apollos, which translates to a man of no country, but we've kind of reinterpreted it to mean global citizen with this kind of lens of using um, craft industries as this kind of vehicle for equality and working in all these different, um, you know, different origins of manufacturing is really how where uh, it all started. Yeah. Cool.
0: There's even so more it took us to a lot than of, I
1: thought. <laughs> yeah. It took us to a lot of weird places, I guess you could say.
0: <laughs> cool. Very cool. So uh, where where are you now? You said that. I mean, obviously, I know menswear was kind of where it started, men's and women's wear. And how about now? What's, what is the brand looking like today?
1: Yeah, it's really segued out of the traditional collection business. I think the market has just gotten um, really difficult to... Uh, Find a an audience for you know I th- I think we're in this real new frontier of if you're not known for something you're not really known for anything and I think what we we were really challenged is I think the market segued into more of this uh, direct to consumer um, landscape the efficiencies of trying to have you know hundreds and hundreds of SKUs that you could get any like forward momentum with any given one skew was really difficult. And so we basically, I feel like we're sort of um, preparing for COVID, you know, four years ago in a weird way where we essentially accidentally made a giveaway bag um, that was just meant to be like a kind of a merch product for buyers and editors. And then it ended up completely hijacking our company. So now we really, have segued out of the apparel completely. And we just make um, primarily this one uh, market bag that maybe you've seen with different uh, neighborhoods printed on it or different um, restaurant groups or hotel groups. So yeah, it's kind of been a bizarre, uh, you know, accidental success in a way.
0: I feel like if, if anyone's listening and hasn't seen these bags before, if you Google the bag, you will have seen it at a farmer's market somewhere, or like you said, at a hotel somewhere. Uh, They are all over the place. Even out here, I see them out here in rural Massachusetts. Um, Super cool. So what was it like to, now it sounds like this one was kind of an accident, but I know you've had several iterations over time. What's it like, to get to that point where you're saying goodbye to one chapter of something you've worked really hard on and and pivoting. Obviously there's the optimism of a new thing that's working well, but was it hard to kind of move on past apparel?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think apparel was a vehicle for, you know, a time and place. I think, you know, I'm, I'm really passionate about, you know, textiles and um, sort of the, you know, artisan, uh, you know, supply chain sort of side of the business and, um, you know, the kind of legacy craft that comes out of the apparel business. But I think I, I originally thought I would always be in like more of like an architecture type industry. And then apparel kind of scratched the itch to like, see things like, you know, really see things come to fruition and really short timelines. Whereas opposed to when I was doing like early drafting classes, it's like, you know, you start talking to other architects and they're like, yeah, this project we've been working on for the last six, seven years. You're like, what? You know? So I think that kind of, um, that sort of, uh, the speed at which the apparel industry works was really, um, attractive to me as like from a design perspective. Um, but I, I think of, I always have sort of thought of, uh, design as more of a language you know and so whether it's like you know learning this sort of vernacular that like comes to fruition in like textiles or apparel or it's more in the industrial design or it's like furniture or buildings like I think it, it's all within that like um ecosystem of like this language and so I think for Shay and I my brother, we can agree on the sustainable kind of um, social enterprise side. We see eye to eye on that. I think on a, from a design perspective, he doesn't really care. And I have like a lot of opinions about it. So um, you know, I think the apparel, I've never really been like a super passionate, like fashion person, but I think like from a design perspective, um, it kind of like, you know, combined all of these like, uh, disciplines of like, you know, the pattern making side and the, and the, the design side uh, mixed with the textile, which is probably the thing I actually love the most about um, more of the apparel uh, textile fashion industry is the actual textile design. And that's which, which is weird now. Cause I have so many mills that I have like long, long, you know, over 10 years of relationships with that will make anything for us. And that's, you know, kind of where that indigo wool came from was, was, a uh, uh kind of a crazy story with a a mill that went out of business and then we tracked down the designer that went to another mill that we convinced to start making this fabric we developed probably 15 years well maybe 12 years ago and so that's kind of a bummer to let let that go Mm -hmm. but um i think now it's like now that i have kids and like your time is just so stretched to then have um You know, something that's working where, you know, a lot of it too, is you, you are on the entrepreneurial side with your, your company, but then you're also like feeding other, you know, essentially entrepreneurs with a product that you want to see them be successful with. So, you know, to have a product that we've shipped, you know, nearly a million units of, and it it basically has like a hundred percent sell-through is like unheard of for like the, uh, the apparel side where there's always like this, you know, you know unfortunate reality of like, Oh, don't talk about the markdowns. Like how are we gonna get rid of all this stuff? We sold half of it, you know? So I think like from a, you know, to still have like our um, input into the business, but to be kind of checking a lot of boxes, like where the supply chain is very much uh, a partnership that their sustainability um, from all the different uh, artisans we work with in Bangladesh, to the network of entrepreneurs that we actually make these bags for when everyone's kind of like happy with you. I think it's, it's uh, really fulfilling beyond, you know, saying, Oh, I made this new variation of this jacket. I can kind of like live without for now.
0: <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, it's funny that you speak of uh, the language of design because the language that we speak in, I'll say apparel and textiles, uh, the language that we speak in is also very fast, right? The way that we consume and the way that we produce and the way we come up with these ideas. It's really hard to balance that idea with this other idea of sustainability and you know, entrepreneurship that betters better the planet. And I love the way that you translate the name of the brand. Uh, notice that I'm like, I'm avoiding, because I'm so afraid I'm going to say it wrong. <laughs> Apollos. <laughs> nice. Apollos, right? I've been around for a hundred years. <laughs> nailed, nailed it. Love it. Perfect. <laughs> um, it's just so hard to, to balance that dichotomy there. Um, but I think you guys do a really great job of that. And one of the terms that I kind of scoped out over different things you put out into the world is, is this idea of social entrepreneurship. And you've spoken to it a little bit but I'm hoping you can give us a definition of what exactly that means to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's a difficult um, style of, or I guess foundation that you or commitment you want to make from like a company ethos perspective. And I think, you know, we've learned a lot. I don't think we've done anything perfectly. I think we've been pretty open source about our journey of how we've, you know, learned some really deep dark secrets about our industry being that it's one of the most um you know harsh impacts environmentally um out of like you know maybe second to the oil and gas industry so there are a lot of uh sort of difficult realities of our business and i think you only really can change any rules if you're in the game, so to speak. So I think like, I don't think we've done a perfect job over the years, but I think we're always trying to improve and ask like hard questions and relay that, disclose that to our customers um, and kind of bring them along where there isn't a lot of ready, uh, you know, available information within, you know, if we're, if we're talking about from an environmental standpoint or a social standpoint, usually it kind of is an intersection of the both categories. You kind of, my opinion, you kind of can't have one without the other. So there are a lot of companies that maybe like don't, they downplay the supply chain from a human resource standpoint, but then they say these are recycled um, polyester PETs that we're using for this like second gen polyester. But the reality, you know, in some of these textile companies that I've been to in Asia, it's like they actually produce the water bottles to make the fabric. You know, it's like, it's not actually being, recycled. So I think there's a lot of gimmicks in our business. And so I think, you know, that was one of the things that drew us to this, um, the supply chain that we partner with in Bangladesh, where it was the maximum expression of kind of like human empowerment blended with the most like primitive, uh, natural textiles on like with one product. Like both the textile and the kind of supply chain um, human impact standpoint was like night and day from any other origin that we had ever worked with. So you know, I think, but I think this idea of social enterprise, it, it a lot, it, a lot of it has to do with this kind of triple bottom line where you're kind of you you want you know I think profit is the ultimate indicator of sustainability. It's kind of a bad word in a lot of the, cause we're kind of on this fringe of like, we do, we talk to a lot of NGOs and not for profits. And then like, then there's like the business side. And then it's like, you know, to talk about profit, it's sometimes a bad word, but I think for a company to stand on its own two feet organically um, is I think the ultimate indicator of sustainability. Like if you can keep moving the ball forward by yourself without, you know, needing help, then that kind of is an indicator of sustainability and then and then kind of also having these um really high you know just guidelines on the textile sustainable element to it and then also on the um, kind of human resource supply chain side of it so i think b corp that you know is relatively the equivalent of like a lead certification on in arch- the architecture world where it's more or less like a uh, rating system for how you can best kind of balance those elements to um, have essentially like a grade. Um, And I think that's one of the few third parties that are really holding, you know, these companies feet to the fire to kind of have that um, have that sort of like, you know, more tangible because a lot of it is just, you know, comms you know it's like oh we're sustainable you know we talked about this briefly before the the conversation started it's like there's a lot of like lack of better terms like greenwashing or um, I think for us we're fundamentally um, focused on the social element and then the environmental is like a 2.0 that we as we can kind of first like I don't think you can serve both things equally like you have to sort of pick a battle and then kind of blend in the, so that's like where the social enterprise social entrepreneurship side has really like been a fundamental kind of missional focus for us as a company. And it's just taken us a lot of random places. Totally.
0: Well, I think you're, you're also wise in saying that uh, there is runoff between the two, right? So being good to the people that you work with uh, will have runoff effects of being good to the environments that, they are, they live in, um, and you mentioned a little bit about uh, about the B Corp status. Um, would love to dive a little bit further into that. What was the process like getting that certification? And maybe for folks that don't know exactly what B Corp is, how does that how does that benefit you?
1: Literally, I mean it ben- uh, It's a benefit corporation. Um, I mean, there's two versions of it. There's like you know the equivalent of it like being part of your like bylaws of your corporate structure which uh, we are not. And then there's the, the B Corp certification, which is the essentially like the um, audit. So we are um, just like a more of a traditional LLC, but we have uh, the benefit Corp B Corp status at, as way of the certification, which is essentially is like pretty intensive um, two-year audit process that kind of measures everything from corporate governance to supply chain to um uh compensation for your in-house um uh like corporate in you know team and the um distance between like the lowest and highest paid person in that organization um you know, and, and I think 90% of B Corps are service providers. So it's, you know, like if you're like a law firm and you want to get, if you want to be kind of like focused on this sort of um, triple bottom line, you know, sort of uh, certification, you, there's, it's pretty, in my opinion, it's, it's a lot easier because you can switch out your light bulbs to be, you know, uh leds or like some of these things where you you have pretty limited impact on the supply on the service provider side um but if you're actually manufacturing stuff which is only 10 percent of b corps um it's a really difficult thing to achieve because it's really uh you get a grade for the kind of aggregate impact that your company is making some things are positive and some things are measured as like trying to do the least amount of harm you know so like like shipping for example it's like some kind of a necessary evil um but like how do you sort of balance that with potentially some like carbon offsets or we we kind of have pivoted to pretty much almost exclusively done um boat boat freight um from which takes like you know way longer than air freight but we will obviously the the courier air freights for direct consumer business is like a big part of it but for the actual like landing of containers, a product, we just boat, sh- we exclusively um, boat sh- uh, freight everything. And that's kind of come, we have a really great um, kind of head of our supply chain, this guy, a friend of ours, Dale Dinkinson, that used to be leading the charge at Patagonia. So we have a yeah. lot of tribal knowledge that kind of gives us like, guys, you guys cannot, you guys just need to plan better. And a lot of it just gets down to discipline and, planning, you know, six months, a year out to just sort of like really make that a priority.
0: For sure. Yeah. I mean, coming from the world of food and knowing, uh, not that those certifications are all the same, but I know what it takes for a farm to get through an organic certification or a fair trade certification. It's not easy. And, And it becomes even harder when it's not, when it's independently regulated versus, uh, governmentally regulated. So, Big, huge kudos to you guys for, I I didn't know, I'm honestly really kind of floored by this fact that only 10% of uh, these B Corp organizations are hard goods versus services. That like totally blows my mind. Um, But that being said, That is, that's a huge, huge process. You guys have had a long time Uh, at some point must've decided that was right for you. If you were giving advice to someone that was just starting a brand now, who's looking to be more socially conscious, more environmentally conscious uh, in the stages of building a brand, maybe hasn't launched yet. What advice from your experience would you pass on?
1: I think not to be afraid of, um, you know, sort of the gray area where I feel like a lot of companies never really get their feet under them because they have really rigid, um, unrealistic expectations of, you know, everything has to be, you know, perfect, like a perfect picture or completely sustainable day one. And kind of goes back to that, what I was mentioning of like, you kind of, you can't change the game. You can't change the rules. If you're not in the game. Um, I think too, is a lot of, startups in my opinion try to do too much good where they they really uh hit, like they set their um kind of like trajectory based on some things that are um you know presumpt- presumptive in the reality of getting to that sustain like sustainability of like your your costs being less than your income, you know, so that sure. you could actually start what we kind of, we look at profit more of as like oxygen We're like we can't really grow if we don't have oxygen. We need to, right. we need to kind of provide our own um, sort of. The income is what we are able to like move the ball forward with, you know, as, mm-hmm. a, as opposed to just like completely, you know, every year over year feeding the meter. And that only works if you have like, you know, you know, maybe a, a crazy uncle that is willing to just keep giving <laughs> money to uh, to that do that. Nice. But at a certain point, yeah, a certain or maybe you come from a background that allows you to do that. But I think most of us don't have that luxury in a lot of, at a certain point in time, it has to kind of stand on its own two legs. So I think um, that's what I was a little bit alluding to on the picking your lane. Like we've really focused on the social element Um, for example, like work, we, uh, previously done some, um, organic cotton, um, like loom textiles in Ethiopia and, and also some more commercial industrial, um, woven heavier fabrics, um, in, um, other parts of like sub-Saharan Africa. And I think a lot of times what we, where we end up focusing on the human narrative and like partnering with people. And then a lot of times we're, we're having to buy cotton that's technically organic, but not certified organic. And so to kind of have a dial to turn, we need, you know, we need to pay for things um, so that the, the supply chain is not, you know, uh, basically pushed in the corner to compete in a commodity, you know, the commodity textile game. And so the only way you can kind of really be comfortable with, Paying for non-certified organic cotton is if that isn't a byline or, you know, a red line that you've created as a brand to say like, oh, we're not working there because we only work with, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of a racket to certified organic cotton, you know, like there, there's a lot of gatekeepers and, and, you know, like the, the land and the, a lot of the, the rural farmers can never afford the certification. So sure. You know, I think there's some things that you need to really like dig into to understand like really, and I think the customer is um, savvy enough. The same thing with fair trade is like, you know, fair trade is essentially like a global minimum wage. It doesn't really tell you anything about a sustainable supply chain or really social impact. So, you know, the model that we've worked off of in Bangladesh is like a 25 to 30% above fair trade wage a profit-sharing dividend and a retirement fund. And, you know, most of the artisans will work for the cooperatives for, you know, four or five years, then they buy property and kind of like spin out. They don't want to be in the textile industry forever. You know, I think that's a a little bit of a misleading idea that everyone wants to work in a garment factory for their whole life. You know, I think it's a, a means to, you know, kind of, furthering their life but they most likely they, they don't want their kids to work in a, a garment factory they want their kids to go and become doctors or so i think the more we can get real with the reality of what we're doing on the supply chain side is the more we can address like how this socially impacts uh, a community and then therefore like a, a bigger area and potentially like a country at, at some point you know
0: totally yeah, man. I mean, it just echoes kind of the sentiment that we have said through a lot of these episodes that we've, that we've conversations that we've had on the podcast. It takes, uh, it's going to take a lot of critical creators and a lot of critical consumers to make a difference. Totally. So kind of all it boils down to. It's interesting to hear. Um, obviously you're super well-traveled, obviously you've been to a lot of really cool places. So even just to hear in your voice, the insight of, you know, what, what economies are like and kind of what, um, what's, what's the market like in, in different different countries and that sentiment of, you know, we just want to create a better life for ourselves. We want to create a better life, you know, lives for our children. Um, That's not, that's not a uniquely American trait, is it? No. (laughs) Aren't aren't we silly to think that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's very primitive. It's kind of like the, you know, the, the very most, you know, ground level instincts and I think, um, I think for us, you know, where we we used to make so many things with so many different countries of origin, I think part of this exercise has been like, let's get really good at one thing. Let's perfect our uh, processes and the um, integrity that we kind of don't really wave, waver from on the on the ground with the supply chains we work with, and let's just make our capacity contingent on the the capacity of the supply chain and we'll grow really slow and it'll take a long time, but then we can emulate this sort of, um, reboot. I feel like it's been like a bit of a reboot where I think this is the style of business we want to do, whether we do onboard new supply chains. But I think to your point, like that food, culinary, you know, agriculture industry has given us a lot of great, um, insight, at a really um you know the people that do it right have like such an unwavering perspective of like how you you know you know what real organic you know farming looks like or farm to table sort of that those rhythms and like the harvest like season is is not a, a very clear-cut commodity and i think If we take that small approach to apparel, which is very relevant because it all stems from agriculture, it's like, okay, like, you know, we need to sort of rethink everything. I think that's been a little bit of the exercise that we've um, been in. And I think it's been really, you know, gotten us to really focus and try to do a few things well, instead of a lot of things, just, you know, sort of half-assed. So
0: totally. Do you think that you see yourselves moving back to apparel ever?
1: I think I could envision where, you know, I think part of the um, challenge with apparel or just like one thing that we've, that's been um, a sort of a reality check is, you know, like we would design garments and then, you know, maybe a few hundred people vote that they like the garment by buying them, you know, or then we make a bag in like a different color and we sell 10,000 of them you know so I think like part of the responsibility on the supply chain side especially when you talk about like social enterprise is you know if we're authentic to like our kind of mission is like we want to continue to bring more people into employment through making these bags and so if we design something that doesn't have the capacity to be like to move the needle like Mm -hmm. you know for a factory to take on 300 units of something is like probably more work than it's worth they can never really get those economies of scale to like set up a line and make it you know make the same thing for the next like two years that's how they'll really impactfully change the trajectory of that small community so i think part of our the integrity of our company we need to be thinking of things that kind of like part of the design challenge is like making something that people like and want and will you know buy a lot of and isn't I that think the app- challenge it, yeah that is <laughs> the ongoing you know it's like everyone's you know whatever question but i think like as if apparel could fit into that where we feel like we could really make an impact um i think we would totally be into it i think it's it's i think we need to kind of like i think it's like a bigger infrastructure to pull that off though we've been looking into some um Kind of like farming, you know, vertical things that we could okay. grow and then create a whole cat, like a like multiple skew category that sure. could, you know, have that cycle kind of built into it. But it's, it's a I big like undertaking.
0: I like that. I like yeah. Se- I asked selfishly. I missed yeah. the the first time. I, I wasn't into good stuff when you guys were doing clothes. Oh. I know <laughs> all
1: my all my shirts are wearing out, and I don't know what to do. So I know you got to
0: replace them. <laughs> oh. Great. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I really appreciate your perspective uh, and kind of the the worldwide perspective that you're able to bring to this topic of sustainability that we're tearing apart lately. Uh, where is the best place for po- folks to stay in touch and keep learning more about the brand?
1: Yeah, um, so our coordinates are at Apolis, A-P-O-L-I-S, um, or my personal Instagram is at Rand Parton, R-A-A-N-P-A-R-T-O-N. Um, and then we have our third-party retail stores called Alchemy Works, and then a new kind of sustainable um, kind of department store concept called Free Market. So those are like all of the things where you can find me. Um, anyone has any... Uh, sustainability or apparel questions, feel free to DM me um, or ran at apollosglobal.com
0: Awesome. Love it. Well, (laughs) thank you so much for your time, your transparency. Look forward to seeing more uh, come out of Apollos. And oh, I did it. I said it
1: wrong, didn't I? I was nervous. That's
0: what it was. Man, if you knew, if anyone knew that I'm always just here sweating that I'm going to say something wrong. (laughs) And it's only when I think about it. Uh, Love it. Cool. Well, thank you for your time again. Had a great time. Thanks, Lucas. uh, Yeah, thanks. Thanks. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Lucas. Yeah. I'm Lucas Fitz, and this is AF Fireside. To learn more about all the brands featured on the podcast, check out fireside.shopaf.co, and don't forget to subscribe to us on your streaming platform of choice. Thanks for listening. Today's episode is presented by Jamestown, a global real estate investment and management company known for transforming spaces into innovation hubs and community centers. Learn more at jamestownlp.com.